Welcome to Arbor Bridge Church's weekly podcast with your teacher, Daryl Canty. Arbor Bridge Church exists to bridge the gospel and our community by connecting people to Jesus and each other. Visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com. Morning, everybody. Thank you all for coming. Um, I was going to pray, but I think Michael covered all the points, uh, and I appreciate that, so we'll just go ahead and get started. Um, I'm, I'm wrapping up my, my sermon series that I've uh, been going through the last few weeks, um, and I'll do a little recap and then get into the message just for any of you who may have uh, missed, missed a portion. So, so far, I've brought us through Jesus' life as a representation uh, for what it means to be the church or, or what the church is. And, and what I've kind of tried to do under the covers, if you will, under the surface, is create a coherent worldview for the church. Um, so a worldview is summarized differently depending on who you ask, um, but it's essentially how any given theory or ideology answers the questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Um, if we put those in question form, they look like this. How do we get here? What is our purpose? Who are we? What do we do? Where are we going? How do we get there? And here's how I've answered those thus far. The first one, origin. How do we get here? Simple answer is the resurrection of Christ. The origin of the church is the resurrection Without this, our faith is dead. In light of it, it ushers in new creation. Christ is a new Adam, um, and he becomes a prototype for all we're supposed to be. The second one is, is what is our purpose? Um, I answered this as we're supposed to be light in the darkness. Um, we're ref- supposed to reflect God's glory to all people. I use the Christmas story or the incarnation uh, as the foretelling that Christ is the light of the world, and that his second birth, he overcomes the darkness, if you will, death. Um, He's the meaning and the chaos of the world. Who are we? What do we do? Uh, This is the identity of the church. Uh, And I answer this as be the love of Christ. Um, We are the disciples of Christ, who is the truth, the Son of God. And we're called to love others as he loved us. And to be known to the world as those who would give up our lives as he gave up his for us. And the last two questions, where are we going and how do we get there, our destiny, I'll try and answer those today. And I guess before I go further, I should probably give a, a spoiler alert, um, since I'm going to tell you guys how it all ends, the Bible, life, the church. Um, maybe not totally, but uh, high level. Ancient philosopher Heraclitus proposed that life or existence itself was like a flowing river. Constantly moving and changing, such that you could never step into the same river twice. You could never experience the same thing twice. And so if you'll allow, I'm going to leverage this metaphor uh, for today's message that we're all on the river of life, so to speak. Now, it's this idea that we're all on a journey, not standing in, but floating down the river of life. Can't stop it. We can only carry on with it. We're not quite sure where it's going, or when, in, or exactly when, where, or exactly when it will get there. Um, we may encounter rapids that endanger us. We might encounter beautiful landscapes and wildlife, 
And again, after some unknown time, we'll flow into our final resting place. Now, if you read through scripture, you'll see there's a series of water metaphors woven through that all point in one direction. There are more than I can cover today, so I've selected a few that I want to touch on. And I think these metaphors pull from what we know from our real-world experience, and that's foremost that water has power, um, but it's a duality of power, both to give life and take it away. We know it provides life and sustenance to all things, and we see it harnessed in dams to provide electrical power. Um, It can carve out landscapes like the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls. Or if untamed, it can wreak havoc through hurricanes, floods, tsunamis, and destroy the very things it was meant to sustain. Because of this reality, the Bible points to our destiny a little bit differently. It is not where the river leads, per se, but where it comes from. It's source. The source of the waters, or the river of life, is the ultimate power. So to answer this question of our destiny, not just for ourselves, but also for the church, let's review this river of life that is woven through scriptures, and go not where the river ends, but where it starts. We'll first go to the well. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Later he says this, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. The setting for these events are arid desert climates where water is both needed in abundance while being critically scarce. Told soldiers that run drills in the area drink 20 ounces of water every hour just to stay hydrated. So that's your standard bottle of water, 16 ounces, so a little more than that. So this idea that you could have running water, which is what living water meant in that Uh, setting that could quench your thirst indefinitely is obviously quite enticing. Jesus, of course, has a different meaning. He's leveraging some use of language here. He's offering literal life-giving water, water that will quench the thirst of the weary soul. To drink this water that Christ is giving will produce within you a river of living water welling up to eternal life. But what does that mean? What does that look like? Let's go to the temple to look at that. In the 47th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel himself is being given a prophecy and a vision from God, whereby a small amount of water starts dripping out of the temple of God, the sanctuary, the church. Slowly the water builds to a stream, and eventually it becomes so deep it cannot be crossed. 
Here's what Ezekiel says about those waters. Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever this water flows. There will be a large number of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. But the swamps and the marshes, they will not become fresh. They will be left for the salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. Now, if you're like me, your immediate reaction is that, well, clearly this is where they got the uh, Fruit of the Month Club idea from. Um, At least that's what I thought. I'm just kidding. Not a very good joke. Um, Ezekiel's passage here is is depicting the power of water that Jesus was referencing, that the life-giving power of this water. So much so that it turns the Dead Sea into the Sea of Life, full of swarms of fish and living things. For reference, the Dead Sea is eight times as salty as average ocean water. Uh, Nothing lives in it. Uh, Apparently some bacteria live in it. I'm not sure they would have known that at the time. Um, It's so salty that even uh, people like Conan O'Brien can float on the surface. Um, um, English evangelist Leonard Ravenhill once said that Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And it is clear that to drink from the living water Jesus is offering to all of us is to quench your soul, mend the broken parts, satisfy its thirst, to purify it. It is to give us life, life to the fullest. It will make our dead hearts and souls renewed and fresh. But the offering is not just to have this done to us, but to have this well up within us, part of the promise of God's spirit, that we can carry this living water to others. But Ezekiel's passage is just a vision, a prophecy for, for what will come. Surely it points to Christ, the well, but it also points to the final source, the throne. If we keep floating upstream, we come to the final destination, the final source. It's the garden, not Eden, but the new garden city, paradise, or what we often call heaven. And at this final source, that river of life will flow not out of the well or the temple, but the very throne of God. Here's the vision John gives of this final source of the river of life. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need sun or moon to shine, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written on the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. 
and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of the God of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need light or a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. In the eighth grade, we were tasked with writing a letter to our future self. Anybody ever do that in school? Write a letter? I've got one. Thanks, Lauren, for supporting me. Um, I didn't find this task very useful. Uh, I didn't have much life experience at age 13. Um, and writing to my 18-year-old self, I'm not sure I would have listened anyways. Um, but I was thinking that if I could have had the opportunity to write a letter from my future self to my historical self, um, that would be pretty valuable, wouldn't it? Um, it would be incredibly powerful to have knowledge of the future. And in a sense, this is what the Bible is offering us with these passages, the power of the knowledge of the future. John's Revelations is, is perhaps literally a letter from the future with the wisdom and knowledge of where and how this all ends. It is perhaps even more explicit for the church than it is for us individually. And just a reminder here, the, the church is the bride of Christ. This is what John's letter says. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In the end, the river emanating from the throne of God runs through the streets of gold in this new Jerusalem, this new city, the city which is the bride, the bride which is the Lamb's followers, the church. And it is through and out of the church that the healing, restorative stewardship will flow. N.T. Wright summarizes it like this. The new creation drawing the double vision together transforms and heals both. As heaven and earth come together as the bride and the lamb come together, so the garden and the city come together as well. Humans, in community with one another and with God, are to exercise their delighted and wise stewardship over the earth and its fruits in the glorious light that comes from the throne. Because we can see the end and because we know our destiny, because we know the Lamb is loyal to the bride, the church, it should give us an immense amount of confidence and power. Not power in the worldly sense, but power in the sense of that river of the water of life. It is ceaseless, boundless, unstoppable, and it will flood the whole world with God's healing, mercy, love, and grace. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is in Acts chapter 5, when the early church is being formed, and they uh, encounter the powers of uh, the Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin. 
And uh, there's a, a leader named Gamaliel, and he gives this warning to the other Jewish leaders who are trying to stop the early church. This is what he says. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop them. You will only find yourself fighting against God. If our work is from God, it can't be stopped. The end is already baked in. The wisdom and knowledge should give us strength to act boldly, give boldly, love boldly. We hold the key to eternal life where death has finally and fully been defeated. Where sin has no place, where the imperishable will not exist. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our labor is not in vain because his was not in vain. We no longer toil like Adam over the land. We bring about the new creation to earth in eager anticipation for when Christ the King, the true source of the river of life, will reign with all authority and dominion forever and ever. Let me close with the story of how Christ became king. If any of you have floated down a river, um, you perhaps understand the parallel to life very vividly. If you've been white water rafting, uh, you may even understand it more so. Um, I had the privilege to white water raft down a uh, river back home called Thompson River. Um, this was on the west coast of Canada where I grew up. Now, the Thompson River is filled by glacial runoff. Um, it's actually a tributary of the Fraser River, uh, which is the largest river in British Columbia. It flows out of the Rockies on the east side of British Columbia uh, out into the Pacific Ocean. And along this rafting trip, uh, fortunately, we managed not to tip over. Um, we didn't have anybody fall out. Um, we did encounter some bears. Uh, fortunately, they stayed on the shoreline. However, none of that was really the most vivid part of the experience. Um, the, the most vivid part was actually where we ended the destination. Seemingly out of nowhere, 
we approached this fork where the two rivers met. And there was this clearly defined seam in the water where the Thompson and Fraser collide. Silver, will you go to the next slide, please? Thanks. We had traveled this entire way on this river produced by the glacial runoff. It was beautiful, translucent, emerald color. And then out of nowhere, we encountered these dirty, filthy waters. It is at the King's Cross that the crystal clear living water of Jesus encounters and overwhelms the dirty, filthy water of the world. Christ takes on our thirst that we might be quenched. Knowing that everything had been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received this drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The cross is where the one who is living water goes thirsty so that you can drink freely and have life. Out of his pierced side his living water full of grace, healing, mercy, and love floods the whole world. The cross is where the power of love overthrows all the kingdoms of world built on the love of power. This is how Christ became king. The sign nailed to the cross read the king of the Jews, but the burial he was given was fit for a king. The large quantity of myrrh and aloes were befitting of royalty. The kings of Judah were all laid in garden tombs, even King David himself. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, and with Pilate's permission he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, who brought a 75-pound of mixture of myrrh and aloes, Taking Jesus' body, the two men wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. There lay Jesus. The burial marks the final destination of the old kingdom. The old story. But it is certainly not the end. It is only the beginning of the great new story. All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. Christ will come again in all his glory and splendor and put all things right and to finally rule from the throne in the new garden city, the kingdom of God, the final destination of the church, the source of the river of life. And he will reign forever and ever. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God. And they will be my children. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information on our church, visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com. Thank you.